All right, y'all, we're finishing Colossians today. So we're in Colossians 4. Someone said earlier that it took us 12 months, and I said, that is a lie, devil. It took us like four. So, Father, as we come to your word, we ask for your presence just to continue to bathe us. Holy Spirit, would you take this word and penetrate our hearts, transform us, Lord, there are some of us here who are bound in sin. We need to be convicted, and we need your power to liberate us. There are some in the room today who are discouraged. Holy Spirit, would you come and encourage and breathe on the embers of our heart? Lord, we believe that you've called us to a significant work, that you're going to use us to reach this community with the power of the gospel, that you've called us to be a people who are sold out and not, not shallow, superficial Christians, and so with all that being said, we just put our lives on the altar right now, and we ask that your fire would fall on our sacrifice. Consume our lives, Lord. In Jesus' holy name, somebody say amen. I was thinking this week um, about Count Zinzendorf, who was the leader of the Moravians. I was actually thinking about him. Why is that funny? Um, I was thinking about him because Seth said his name. Um, the Moravians were the first Protestant missionaries, the first uh, to hold a 24-7 prayer movement. Zinzendorf was an aristocrat and saved as a youth, staring at a picture of Jesus' crucifixion. He was gripped with the beauty of the gospel, and immediately he began to kind of deposit these little prayer meetings everywhere he went, even in his... Um, even in his youth in his teen years they saw several moves of the spirit and literally carried the gospel around the world eventually the Moravians were you, you remember that uh, John Wesley his first trip to Savannah he was a priest he kind of got run out of Savannah um, he would say that he didn't uh, hadn't even really encountered the Holy Spirit yet in his life and so he was on a boat headed back to homeland back to England and um, there was a great storm and he got so nervous he was so afraid of dying and you remember he said that there were a group of Moravians these people who had been around doing mission work forever and they were just kind of singing and had total peace and he said he was convicted immediately because these Moravian mothers and their children and teens um, were totally confident in the sovereignty and the goodness of God and he is this um kind of high-minded priest is shaking in his boots and it was the Moravians who totally turned uh, Wesley's life. Well, that leader of the Moravians was reading Leviticus chapter 6, verse 12 through 13, which says that the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, and it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And so he believed that the Lord was leading the Moravians to hold a 24-7 prayer meeting or a prayer chain. What started uh, for 24 hours a day, for seven days a week, started with 48 people, 24 men and 24 women, who all committed to interceding, to praying for one hour a day, every day, for the rest of their lives, essentially. And this prayer meeting went on for over a hundred years. There was continual prayer by this group of Moravians who carried the gospel to the Americas, 
all over Europe, to the islands, to Africa. The Moravians were the hottest, most sold-out missionary movement that the world had seen in hundreds of years. And underneath it was a group of 48 people, started with 48 people, it grew, who said, we will keep the fire on the altar burning. And again, for a hundred years, that prayer chain never broke. And, and so that would be generations, right? Like grandparents who are now praying with their grandkids and keeping their, hot, their hearts hot and seeing missionaries released around the world. It's, I don't know, a hundred years after, well, some decades after this prayer movement started that the Moravians just happened to be on the same boat as John Wesley. And John Wesley, who would be the greatest not the greatest preacher of his day, Whitfield would be the greatest preacher, but the greatest influencer, he had the most impact, um, John Wesley sitting on the boat going, oh no, like these people know something about God that I don't. And when John Wesley got back to, to England, he immediately goes to Moravian meetings to hear the gospel. And so, it, I, I say all to say that um, Zinzendorf again would be the leader of the movement, and um, he was he was a aristocrat, a wealthy man, and um, had vision and was hot hearted. But what carried the movement was normal people like you and me. Like the people who signed up to pray were like housewives and teenagers, and uh, although Zinzendorf had leadership and finances, and definitely the hand of God was on his life. He was surrounded by Moravians who were just hot-hearted and ready to go and serve. And without them, there would be no Moravian movement or, or no transform, transforming of nations by the power of the gospel. And so I wanted to say that every move of God, there were some Moravians rounded up, ready to go and serve and pray and lay their lives down. And so for John Wesley, he called him Methodist. Right, like Wesley doesn't have the impact that he has. Though again, he was an incredibly intellectual man and a, and a good enough preacher. Wesley's real strength was really his administration, his organization. Um, but Wesley had the Methodist, and then you could look at the the Salvation Army, right? You could just preach on every corner, go anywhere, do anything. You can call it what you want, but there are these pockets of people throughout history who lay their lives down for the gospel together. Like they needed each other. They needed the momentum um, of of the prayer meetings. They needed the the they needed each other to to push each other on to encourage each other. Like Zinzendorf again, without the Moravians, he has no movement. He needed this band of kind of laid down radical lovers of Jesus to work with him and to live with him and to go. He didn't go everywhere, right? Like, they're, they're Moravians. And the same with Wesley. He needed this band of laid-down lovers of Christ. We'll go anywhere. We'll say anything. We'll pray until we're blue in the face. And Wesley, with this band of, of Methodists, again, what he called them, they changed, transformed the entire face of our nation. It's the same with the Salvation Army. There needed to be this movement of people, this, this group of people who would say, life is only for Christ. And 
again, call them what you want. Call them Arabians, call them Methodists, call them the Salvation Army. But there are groups of people who have rallied around each other with hot hearts and transformed the face of the earth. Not, not, not individuals on their own. Like we think of the leaders. Yeah, there's leaders and movements, but, but these Methodists, these circuit riders, think of the circuit riders covering the face of this nation preaching the gospel. Um, these kind of movements change the world. And now, so as we turn to Colossians chapter 4 and we get ready to close our text, we find a, Paul now interacting with a lot of different people. And so he's going to give direction to um, Onesimus, and then he's going to give direction to Tychicus, and then he's, there's, there's, he's going to talk about Luke and, um, and Demas. And so we find Paul interacting with his Moravians, with his Methodists, with his Salvation Army, because, because Paul's sitting his butt in jail. And so he can't actually go and minister. And Paul can't do all Paul's called to do without being involved in a community of Moravians, in a community of a Salvation Armyist, without being involved in a community of, uh, uh, of circuit riders, people willing to go and preach and carry the gospel and share and minister. And so I, I, as we read the text, it's, it's funny to think of Paul sitting in prison writing this letter to the Colossians um, because Paul is kind of like the mob boss, right? Who's in jail, okay? Because he's in jail and he's still calling the shots. And he's saying, you go here and you do this and you do that. And it's funny to think of, think of the early Christians that way. They were a holy mob, okay? They were holy on a mission, but they were organized and dedicated and passionate and they couldn't accomplish what they wanted to accomplish without unity and a willingness to go and serve. And I say that to say that I think God, I do, I really believe this. I don't think God has called us to be a normal church. I don't think God has called us to be a, um, once a week, high-fiving each other on Sundays and living the rest of the week for ourselves. I think God has called you to be Moravians. I think God has called us to be a Salvation Army in this region. I think God has called us to be circuit riders ready to go and ride and share and preach and pray. I think God is calling some of you to commit yourselves to a life of prayer, to saying, I will pray an, an hour a week for the rest of my life just for the ministry. I think God is calling us to some significant work, and none of us can accomplish what God has called us to accomplish without partnering ourselves with other Moravians. You guys hear what I'm saying? Um, so let me read you the text, and I want to show you Paul and his kind of band of Moravians, his band of laid-down lovers of the gospel. Colossians 4, 7-18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. You guys are going to laugh at that name too. Go ahead. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. And with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, if Mark comes to you, you should welcome him. And, and Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a great comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. 
Luke, the beloved physician, he greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now here, remember again the context of the epistle to the Colossians, right? The Colossian church is a young church. I told you originally that um, Colossae, how do you say this? Um, These three cities created kind of a triangle. Heropolis, which would be the the northern one. Laodicea, which was about 10 miles to the west. And then Colossae would was 10 miles this way. So there's kind of this 10 mile to each city triangle. And these churches have some relationship to each other. So obviously we think of the church of Laodice- at Laodicea um, when we study the book of Revelations because it's one of the seven churches mentioned there. And so historically there's some connection between these three churches. And some believe that Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul at Ephesus, which was close, and carried the gospel to these cities and planted this church. And so as we studied the book, we learned that Epaphras... Um, is burdened because the church at Colossae has been infiltrated um, by false teachers, by heretics, by wolves in sheep's clothing, Um, men who brought uh, a message which essentially said, hey, Paul's gospel um, is great, and Paul knows a lot about the gospel, um, but he doesn't know all that there is to know about the gospel. And you come to our little secret meetings, and we'll teach you what you really need to know. And we'll teach you the higher spiritual way. And and so they're creating this little sect of kind of Gnostic-like movement of people who believe that the gospel is good, but you need more. And if you follow their new rules and their new religious pattern, then you'll be the real Christians. And Paul says all of that is garbage, all of that is heretical, and all of that is intended to lead you astray and into bondage to hell. And what you need is the plain gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that the blood of the Lamb liberates you from all bondage, atones for all iniquity, and by the death and resurrection of Christ, you have total newness of life. And so you don't need to follow these new false teachers. You need to simply hold fast to what's been delivered to you in the true gospel of Christ. Now that's essentially the structure of the epistle. But what we find is that Epaphras, who's frustrated with these false teachers, He's gone to Paul, the apostle, who's sitting in prison, and said, Paul, you've got to sort out their doctrine. You've got to, you've got to write to them and give them pure theology. Epaphras is burdened. And so, again, Paul in prison, he, um, he's, he closes this epistle by saying this, remember my chains. Now, that's an inter- uh, interesting phrase. So, the first band of Moravians, the first that the head of the circuit riders, the head of the Salvation Army, Paul, the head of this band of missionaries, is currently in prison. And he says to all of his followers and to the churches that he's preaching to, I want you to remember my chains. What does he mean? I want you to remember that I have not sold out. I could deny Christ today and live in freedom. I want you to remember that I've persevered. 
I want you to remember that I am suffering well for the sake of the gospel. I want you to remember that my gospel is not lip service, but I'm ready to live and die for this Christ Jesus. I want you to remember that I sit in bondage for your freedom and liberty because I refuse to deny Christ. So Paul, in a way, is saying to this band of missionaries and to the churches that they influence, I want you to follow me as I follow Christ and being willing to lay my very life down for this gospel. This gospel is not a gospel of pleasure. This gospel is not a gospel of comfort. This gospel is a gospel of sacrifice. I want you to remember my sacrifice as I sit in prison. So the first, the head of the missionaries, uh, the head of this you know, band of Salvation Armyists is sitting in prison. So Paul says, um, Tychicus will bring you this letter and he will share with you all um, about what's happening here. He'll give you all the information. And so the first person we find in the missionary band is this man called Tychicus. We don't know much about him. Um, and his role seems a bit mundane. Tychicus is just going to carry the letter from Paul to Colossae. Uh, most believe that Paul's in prison at Ephesus. So he's going to take this big journey down to Colossae and he's going to inform the church. Now he feels like a secretary. He feels like a, a runner, a go boy. Um, and so in, in one sense, some of us in our calls, some of us as we serve Christ, others could look at our call and say, that's meaningless. Your work is less valuable. Tychicus could have thought of, his, of himself as just a go-boy, as a gopher, a runner. But can you imagine from heaven's perspective, the man is carrying not one, but two original copies of Scripture. And he's carrying a letter that's going to deliver a church from bondage and inspire Christians for thousands of years. And so many times in the Christian life, so many times as you give yourself to be a circuit rider, to give yourself to be a missionary, you just say, God, I'll go anywhere. I'll serve anywhere. I belong to you. So many times the task that you get assigned to feels mundane. But oftentimes from heaven's perspective, you are carrying the word of God that will transform for thousands of years. And so we are not to judge one another's calls and giftings. We don't have the wisdom and the insight to say to someone who's, who's simply a, a greeter or someone who has the gift of hospitality and so they're hosting people in their homes. We don't get to say to them, oh, you're not a hot preacher. You don't really do the real work. No, we're not allowed to judge one another. We simply honor and acknowledge the gifts and the strengths of all of the body because we have no idea what Tychicus is carrying. We have no idea what he's carrying. And what if he would have just quit and thrown the thing away or burned it, right? Like, no, no you carry, he was carrying a, a very vital piece of Christian history. So some of us feel like, oh, we don't do much. But even, even Jesus says to the apostles, the greatest among you is the servant of all. Those who faithfully do the things that don't look glamorous are actually ex expositing humility, expounding upon the nature of Christ, which is humility. And so first, when we look at Tychicus, I want you to remind your heart. You may never, uh, you never ever preach from a stage. You, so many times we say to one another, you're going to be the next Reinhardt Bunky. Sad news, there's only a couple Reinhardt Bunkies in the world, okay? It's probably not us. Like, that just spit on all the, like, charismatic lingo. Um, 
like some of us are called to faithfully serve. And we can't look at our callings with an earthly perspective because you have no idea what you're carrying. You have no idea the significance of your call. You feel like a go-boy sometimes, but you might, you might be delivering a message that's going to transform a community. Tychicus reminds us of that. Then we learn that Tychicus is traveling with a man called Onesimus. Now, Onesimus is really interesting as well because Onesimus is the man who the letter to Philemon is about. And so we know a lot about Onesimus. Let me just remind you, educate you, teach you for a second. Um, Onesimus was a runaway slave. And so his master's name was Philemon. Philemon was a Christian, um, but we're assuming that Onesimus was in some kind of debt scenario. He owed Philemon money and was supposed to be working it off. But Onesimus, um, out of depression or frustration or anger, decides that he's just going to split. And he runs from his master, Philemon. Now he runs to the city where Paul is imprisoned. And when he thinks that he's trying to escape, now you need to know that the punishment for an escaped slave is, is murder, is death. So Onesimus is, in his mind, a runaway slave trying to start a new life. He's anxious. Can you have, you, you know, like that, we watch TV shows about people who are running from the law. Like there's an anxiousness that comes with knowing that any day, at any moment, you could be caught. He's nervous. He's, at this point in Onesimus' life, he's not a believer. He has no context of Christianity. Well, he has a context, I imagine, from Philemon, but he hasn't given his life to Christ. So he's, he's running, he's hiding, he's nervous. He owes a great debt that he could never pay, so he's trying to just escape it. But then, in the sovereignty of God, Onesimus, in his escape, meets Paul, of all people. And there, Onesimus hears the gospel of Christ Jesus. And a man who's running from bondage, Paul now declares, you are free of your sin. You are a new creation. I understand that from our, our cultural perspective, you are less than, you're a slave, but I call you now in the name of Christ Jesus, a brother. And then Paul says to Onesimus, and, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're a band of missionaries with work to do, so why don't you get your butt up and help? And, and so, What's fascinating here is that Onesimus is carrying the letter with Tychicus, uh, Tychicus, and we know historically that they are also carrying the letter called Philemon. And so, do you remember in, the, in our text today, it said, it said, Onesimus is one of you, meaning that it's very likely that Philemon lived in Colossae. And so, the letter of Philemon essentially says, to Philemon, who is the slave owner, Paul says to Philemon, Onesimus is now your brother in Christ. If he owes you any debt, charge that to me. In other words, whatever money he owes you, whatever service he owes you, you put that on my tab, Philemon, and you're to let this man go. So what we get from looking at the life of Philemon, I want to say this, I want you, I want you to hear me. Does it, some of us in the room feel you, you've been running from God some of us in the room, you feel like you, you have a debt that you can't pay. Maybe you're addicted. Maybe you're bound by sin. Maybe you're, maybe you're tired and exhausted and all of your life is anxiety and just trying to get away. I want you to hear me say that the gospel of Christ Jesus will set you free. The gospel of Christ Jesus will redeem you. The gospel of Christ Jesus will elevate you to the standard of brother or sister in Christ. I want you to also hear me say, we've got work to be done, so why don't you get off your butt and help? You hear me saying that? We, 
you just found yourself in a room of Moravians. We got work to do. So get free in Christ. Some of you are bound in sin, man. You've been struggling with alcoholism for 20 years. It's time to get free in Christ. I've got work for you to do. You do, we, we cannot afford to have members of our body bound up in sin, sitting on their hands, just moping and doping about. No, you've got a purpose and you've got a call. The gospel of Christ Jesus has the power to liberate you. It's time to get free. It's time to get to work. Onesimus reminds us that there is freedom and there is work to be done. Next, we're told that there are only a few Jewish men, men of the circumcision, Paul calls them, who work with him, who are a part of his missionary team. First, there's Aristarchus, who Paul calls his fellow prisoner. Aristarchus is suffering alongside Paul. So Onesimus and Tychicus are carrying the letter to Colossae. Paul just wrote this letter, encouraging and correcting. But Paul, as a, as a, as a partner in prison, his name is Aristarchus, fellow prisoner. They sing together. They pray together. I believe even the Apostle Paul grew tired at times. They were, we know that they were hungry in prison at times. And I think Aristarchus becomes Paul's encourager and challenger and says, Paul, I will suffer with you. I'm not going to quit on you. I think Aristarchus says, we can pray a little longer, Paul. Let's keep pressing. And so Aristarchus and Paul become prison partners. They suffer together. They suffer well. They pray together. They intercede. They challenge one another to keep the good fight of faith. You need Aristarchus in your life. People who say, I see that you're struggling with sickness. I know there's disease that's attacking your home. I see that you're struggling with frustration. But I'm going to grab your arm, lock arms with you. We're going to keep fighting this great fight of faith. We're not going to quit today. We're going to keep pressing forward. In a band of Moravians, in a band of missionaries, in a band of Salvation Armyists, in a band of circuit riders, you have to have Aristarchus' men and women who say, we ain't quitting. No matter what, we will not quit. So Aristarchus sits in prison alongside Paul, encourages and challenges. The second Jew that Paul lists, we stumble into a really interesting narrative about, um, about this band of missionaries. We stumble into the man called John Mark. Historically, many believe that John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, which is why it would have been called John Mark, but he dictated it at the hand of Peter, so Peter was sharing with him. So you could think of, John, of the Gospel of Mark as from Peter, that John Mark wrote from Peter. Um, but when we think of John Mark, our minds should immediately run to Acts chapter 15, where we're told that the first missionaries to be sent out were named Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas, they brought with them a man named John Mark, who would be their assistant. Now, Barnabas is the cousin of, of John Mark, so there's relationship there. But we read in Acts 15, verse 36 to 41. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So after Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey concluded, they're back in Antioch. Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back out. Let's do a trip. Let's make sure the churches are doing well. Barnabas wanted to take John. That would be John Mark, also called Mark. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them and Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Now, I like to think about this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas because I think it's funny. Um, we clearly know that Paul is this man of deep conviction. 
Paul is very smart, but he's also very passionate and committed. His, his teeth are bit down. He's not letting go. And oftentimes, people of great conviction don't have a lot of respect for people who lack conviction. Um, and so what we know is that on the first missionary journey, John Mark, who was really young, he quit. He gave up. We don't know if he was tired. We don't know if he was just missing home. We don't know if he was hungry or maybe he got frustrated. You know, young people sometimes get frustrated with their leadership and kind of say, forget you, I'm leaving. We don't know what happened, but John Mark quit. So now they're getting ready to go on their second journey. And Paul, the convicted one, says John Mark is not worthy to walk with us. But Paul's best friend and minister companion's name is Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And Barnabas, the encourager, says, no, Paul, we don't quit on people like that. And so now they're going head to head. Now, I think it's very healthy for Paul to have someone in his life who will butt heads with him because he's such a strong leader. And so I think Barnabas is in the right to stand toe-to-toe with him and argue. But the argument becomes so contentious that they split. So Barnabas takes John Mark with him, and Paul chooses Silas and goes another direction. And so what we find from that account is that Paul is not a fan of young John Mark because John Mark, in Paul's mind, is a quitter. But what's interesting is that in the later years of Paul's life, Paul will eat his words. Because Barnabas, his, his, his name again means son of encouragement. In Acts chapter 11, Barnabas is called a man full, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas has kept John Mark close and continued to disciple and continued to pour and continued to encourage. And now Paul's going to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, which is probably one of the, if not the latest epistle that Paul wrote, um, one of the latest. So in the very end of Paul's life, he's going to say this. He's going to say, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's very useful to me. That's called eating your words. And so what we find through the scriptural narrative, and even in this text, we learned that now at this point, Luke, the physician, and John Mark are working together. Remember again that Luke will write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He's faithful and dedicated. He seems to be a wise man. He, Luke's going to work with Paul some. Luke's going to um, interview even Mary to put together the, the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke's this faithful, dedicated, wise, intellectually smart man. We find in this season that John Mark is working with Luke. So from the progression of John Mark's life, what do we learn? Some of you have fallen flat on your face. And all of hell tells you you can't get up. Maybe even some of the church told you you couldn't get up. Maybe even men and women in leadership said, you're not worthy, you're not committed enough, you're lazy. What we learn from John Mark's life is it's not how you start, man, it's how you finish. And I want to say to you this morning, maybe you are bound in sin. Or maybe you've, you were given a ministry position and you fell. Or maybe everyone in your family views you as a drunk or a liar or a cheat. And you don't think there's any way you could ever fulfill the call of God on your life. I want to tell you that if John Mark could get back up, you can get back up, man. Get off the ground. Get off your face and get up. We've got work to do. There is work for you to do. There are people in bondage waiting for your gifting. There are people tied up in sin who need to hear the gospel come from your lips. Your failure, your past mistakes cannot define your future faithfulness. Get up. It's not how you start sometimes, it's how you finish. Get up. The testimony of John Mark is, get him and bring him to me because he's very helpful. 
from there, I'd like to show you another co-worker listed here that's really interesting. Um, if John Mark is this testimony to us that even when you fall in sin, there's still, even when you quit, there's still hope, there's still purpose. Um, we find another man here called Demas. Now, again, if we remember that Colossians, the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon were written together and sent together, we would think that the introductions and the conclusions list the same people, and they pretty much do. So in the introduction of Philemon, Demas is called a fellow worker. Sometimes that's what Paul calls his band of missionaries, his co-workers in Christ, or his fellow workers. He says Demas is a fellow worker. In Colossians 4, Demas is listed with Luke the physician, again, who was a faithful man. So at this point in Demas's life, we know that he is working with Luke, he is serving within the gospel, but in that same letter, in Second Timothy chapter 4, in the later years of Paul's life, this is what we read about Demas. Paul writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas becomes, in church history, the, the picture of apostasy. So even, I know this is getting detailed, but even in the Pilgrim's Progress, you know, that story of pilgrims journeying in the kingdom, um, Demas shows up. There's a character called Demas who tries to tempt uh, the pilgrims to come and mine silver with them. Because in all of church history, Demas is this picture of loving the world more than you love Christ and quitting on your gospel ministry. Paul calls Demas a betrayer. Paul calls Demas the one who abandoned him. Paul calls Demas apostate. And so, on one hand, we see in this list of workers, John Mark, who failed, but who got back up and finished strong. And then we see another man, Demas, who seemed to be on the right track, but fell in love with money, fell in love with pleasure, fell in love with the things of this world. And the scripture calls him um, an ultimate betrayer. Commentators in church history have called Demas the second Judas. And so we see in the life of Demas the same principle we see in the life of John Mark. Sometimes it's not how you start, it's how you finish. You hear what I'm saying? John Mark failed in the beginning, but he got back up and ran strong. Demas seemed to be running strong, but he quit because he loved the world more than the gospel. The way that he finished ruined everything that he sowed. I want to challenge you today. I think there are some of you who are being tempted right now with sin. Every Christian in the room will go through seasons where hell tries to tempt them. Jesus had a season of temptation. Some of you right now may be in a season of temptation. I want to tell you, don't quit. I want to tell you, hold fast to holiness. I want to challenge you. There's a call of God in your life. Don't love pleasure more than you love the gospel of Christ. Pleasure cannot fulfill you. Only the sweet presence of the Holy Ghost will sustain you for the years to come. You must resist Satan and he will flee from you. Let Demas be your reminder that for all of your Christian life, you will have to resist Satan. Paul says, Demas has abandoned me. Next, Paul tells us about Epaphras again, who was this man who planted the church at Colossae. Paul tells us that, Paul says, I bear witness concerning him that he is constantly praying for you. We find in Epaphras what it means to be an intercessor. We find in that man what it means to be broken-hearted for the church of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. We find in that man what it means to continually and steadfastly pray. We find there the testimony, church, that we must be a praying people. That it's not enough to offer up a few prayers every now and again when you're sick, but we're supposed to contend in prayer and wrestle in prayer. And Paul points to that man and says, look at the intercession on his life. Model that. Epaphras becomes the reminder for us that we are to be a people of prayer. 
And finally, as I get ready to close, Paul says to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. This seems to me to be not only an encouragement, but a warning. Maybe Archippus is bitter. Maybe there's a fight in the church that he leads. Maybe he's just growing tired and weary. Maybe Archippus is in a season of temptation. It's as if here, Paul is grabbing him by the collar of his shirt and saying, you have been given a task, soldier. You've been given a ministry. You've been called to a work. Ephesians chapter 2, we were saved by grace through faith. We're saved totally by grace, but we were saved to a good work which God has prepared beforehand for us. So in other words, Paul says in Ephesians 2, every one of you were saved by grace, but there is ministry work ahead of you that you were saved for. And so Paul grabs Archippus by the face and says, you make sure you fulfill the call of God in your life. And again, that's what Moravians do for each other. That's what circuit riders do for each other. That's what fellow co-workers in Christ do for each other. When you're struggling and when you're tired and when you're weak, we grab each other by the shirt and we say, there's a call of God in your life. You better make sure you don't quit. I need you when I'm tired, when I'm anxious, and when I'm weary, I need you to look me in the eye and say, Caleb, there's a call, don't quit. I need you to challenge me. I need you to spur me on. And we need fellow co-workers in the gospel. We need one another who know each other well enough, who are committed to each other in relationship. We need to grab one uh, one another by the shirt and say, get up and get to work. You are not going to lay down on your task. Press on. Keep laboring. Fulfill the work. So what do we learn today from the conclusions of the, uh, the text of the Colossians? We learned, one, that Paul works with a body of missionaries. He has fellow workers. I don't know if you can figure out this logic or not, but Paul cannot carry that letter to Colossae because he's in prison. Okay, he ain't, There's no email, right? Somebody's got to walk that thing. So Paul needs help. At times, Paul needs encouragement. At times, Paul needs Barnabas to stand up and push back. Paul is in relationship with, a, with an organization. I don't think that in any sense they had a structured organization. But you know what I mean? A structure, there was a structure, a group of men who had a common conviction. We will live and die for Christ Jesus alone. We've got work to do. We're going to pray. We're not going to live for the pleasure of this world. We're going to live to see Christ Jesus glorified in all the nations. And within that context of missionaries, each individual has a specific call and a specific responsibility. So hear me for four minutes as I close. Think of the the parable of the talents. Each man given a talent will stand before God alone. Tychicus will stand before Christ Jesus on the last day alone and give account for how he has handled the gifts of the call, and the opportunities that God has given him. And so you don't get to stand before God on the last day and say, okay, I I lived a life mainly for pleasure, but Caleb didn't really preach that well, so take that up with him. (laughs) Right? Like, you stand before God alone. You have a responsibility for what has been deposited in you. You have a call to fulfill the call of God on your life. You will stand before God alone on the last day. Tychicus will give account for his life. But not one of us will stand before God alone successful unless we live life yoked 
to other laid down lovers of Christ. You hear me? You will stand before God alone, but I promise you, you will not stand before God alone with confidence unless you live life with Moravians, unless you live life with circuit riders, unless you live life with the Salvation Army, people who get in your face when you, when you get ready to quit, people who challenge you when you um, are struggling with sin, who call you to holiness, people who grab you by the shirt and pick you up when you fall and you're ready to quit, and the world says that you're, you're a failure. You need brothers and sisters who say, I don't care what you did yesterday, John Mark. We've got things to do. Get back up. I don't care how you failed in your beginning. Let's finish strong. You have to surround yourself with fellow workers so that when you stand before God on the last day, you can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so again, we see, run through them. Paul in chains, suffering. Aristarchus suffering with Paul, Onesimus in bondage, but now set free and put to work. Tychicus feels like his job is mundane, but only heaven knows the significance of what he's doing. John Mark has finally become useful because he got up and kept working. Demas used to be useful, but he fell in love with the pleasures of this world and quit. Epiphas never quits praying. He's our model of intercession. And Archippus is our reminder that we're not to stop laboring for the gospel of Christ. So in conclusion, I'll say to you again, I don't believe that we're called to be a Sunday morning church. I don't think that the call of God on this church to this community is to be a nice place to get high fives and hugs and told that you're doing great every weekend. And some of you, there's a, t- there's a time and a place for that, obviously. I think God is calling us to set this low country on fire with the gospel. But, that is going to require some Moravians to rise up. I challenged you last week, we're going to have to be a people of prayer. And we're, we're going to keep pushing our Wednesday night prayer. I want you to, I want you to find a prayer meeting. The, some of the men pray at 7 a.m. on Saturdays. Women with Lisa pray on Monday nights. There are other prayer meetings happening. Start a prayer meeting if that time doesn't work for you. Call us and say, I want to start a prayer meeting. We, we've got to be a people who carry the torch of prayer. And then we have to be a people who rally around one another and push each other to continue to labor, who pick each other up when you fall, who challenge each other. And so when we get to connect groups this season, I'm asking you to get in a connect group, to get serious about the the soberness of doctrine, to make sure we're getting our work right. And I'm asking you to, to be a part of a connect group. And I'm also asking you to be a part of a connect group in such a way that you're actually engaged and challenging and encouraging the others around you. I'm not asking you to show up and have nachos and cheese, although I pray in Jesus' name you have nachos and cheese. I'm asking you to have your nachos and then look someone in the face and say, how's your marriage going? And they say, I feel like quitting. And then you say, you can't. And they say, why? And you say, because there's work to do. You look a parent in the face and say, I know you're tired. And they say, I feel like laying down. I don't know what to do with this kid. And you say, keep praying. Don't slow. Maybe they come in and they say, I, I, I cussed my wife this week. We got in a fight. I threw something. Or the wife says, I'm, I'm, I'm totally frustrated with my husband. I'm, I'm tired. And they say, I'll fall. And you say, that's all right that you fell. Get back up. Not how you start. It's how you finish. Let's get back to it. And so as we get ready to close, I want you to hear me say, I'm, I'm challenging you to continue to be a people of prayer. 
and let's, let's, let's rally some Moravians in this place. Let's get serious. Let's challenge one another. Let's fight the good fight of faith. That's what Paul called the Christian walk. He didn't call it a lazy river. Wouldn't that be nice? I understand you live on Hilton Head or Bluffton. It's beautiful. But the Christian life is not a lazy river. Paul calls it a fight of faith. Go ahead and stand to your feet for me. Seth, would you come? One, if you've never given your life to Christ, really surrendered. If your Christian life or your, your journey has been this just kind of shallow cultural Christianity or maybe you've gone to church before but you just don't get it and it doesn't make sense to you, I want to talk to you just for 30 seconds. The scripture says that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What the scripture says is that all people will be judged on the last day and there is not righteous, not one person righteous. That every person needs grace. What this Bible teaches is that when Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, hung on that ancient tree, hung on that cross, that the blood that was shed was atonement for your sins. What this Bible teaches is that if you would come and confess faith in Christ and make him your Lord, submit your life to him, if you would come and bow to Jesus and call him king, that all of your sins would be forgiven. That even, uh, even your, your sexual failures or your, your financial failures or your lying, stealing, killing, whatever it is, all of, your, all of your guilt would be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. The scripture says that you can have new life in Jesus. So I want to challenge you this morning. If that's you, I want you to come to the altars as they're open. I want you to give your life to Christ. And I want to say to you, I've got work for you to do. I want to say, I understand that you've lived your life for pleasure. It's time to start living your life for the gospel and for others. Come lay your life down today. There's forgiveness, there's restoration, there's newness in Jesus' name. Second, I want to say to you, if you are tired and you feel like quitting, I want you to get in the altar today. We're going to pray that the Holy Spirit will release a fresh baptism of fire on your life. If you've struggled with sin, struggled with, with, with major just addiction or trial, I want you to come get in this altar. Let's get you filled with the Spirit and free. And I want to say to you, there's work for you to do. Not how you start, it's how you finish.